If you will, please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We're just barely starting a series of expositional messages from Paul's letter to the Philippians. And we no sooner started last Lord's Day morning then we stopped quickly to emphasize the phrase that appears in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, and here's the phrase, with the overseers and deacons. We as leadership team talked much about the opportunity to stop right there and to ponder this concept of overseers or elders and deacons. This is a kind of teaching that can never be underemphasized. And it often has been overemphasized to good effect because... This kind of teaching on elders and deacons is the kind of teaching that needs to happen in the life and the generational nature of churches all the time. Because people come in, and sometimes people go, and people lose sight of the idea of what it means to have elders and deacons in the local church for the leadership of that church. And this particular season of life and ministry at Bethany Church is no different. We want to grip for some of us and regrip for others of us this concept of elders and deacons. And when I say underemphasized and overemphasized, the way that it's underemphasized at times is that while it may be taught either from the pulpit or in other places, you don't always have the opportunity to see these men in action. And it's underemphasized, therefore, when you may hear some teaching about it, but it's so disconnected from you because you're not an elder, you're not a deacon, and you lose sight of the appreciation of what these men do as they serve. And it can never be overemphasized in the sense that we can never stop teaching about it, We always need to refresh and remind and renew ourselves about how the leadership of a local church is to work, how they're to function, how they are to continue to do the work of the ministry in the midst of the congregation so that you and I can see them for what they should be doing and then hold them accountable for those very things. Now, last time when we started... We talked about this concept of the calling of an elder. We're going to talk about the calling of a deacon a little bit later on, but I want to continue to focus in this several-part series on the concept of the calling of an elder. Now, last time I told you about three different terms that are all interchangeable that speak of this one office, the office of elder. That was the first word, in fact, the word elder, presbuteros. It means they... They have about them, these elders, 
a kind of age, a, a kind of maturity. It's not necessarily respective to the idea that a certain uh, person has to be, say, for instance, uh, 50 years old or 60 years old or 70 years old in order to qualify as an elder. Uh, the, the chronology of his life is not as important as the maturity of his life. And there are such people who are wise beyond their years in their 30s and 40s and 50s. And the eldership can be comprised of men of various ages, both somewhat young and somewhat older, because the idea of an elder is the maturity of his life, the character of his life, the aptitude of his life and his teaching ministry. And this eldership might be the combination in any one church of those who are compensated by the church to serve as elders, or it's made up of those who are compensated and those who are not compensated. And as I joked last time, some of us do it for good and some of us are good for nothing. And these elders band together And we work together regardless of our age, our station in life, uh, our particular strengths and weaknesses. And God, God molds and shapes the eldership with all of these uniquenesses and all of these men so that the eldership can lead each respective body in a local expression we call the church. I also mentioned to you that another interchangeable word that the New Testament uses is the word pastor. A shepherd. And I told you, even though this sounds like a bit of a jolt to the ecclesiastical system, that if a man is serving as a mature elder, then he's also a pastor, even if he's not compensated by the church. He's a shepherd. We're all serving the great shepherd, and sometimes we use the term to make sure that we are differentiating between the great shepherd and ourselves, and we use the term under-shepherd. All of us who are elders are under-shepherds of God's flock, and we are serving, whether or not we're paid by the church or not, to be the shepherds, the pastors of that flock. So it wouldn't be uh, strange, although it may be initially strange to the ears, for me to call up someone to pray, and I say, Pastor Joe Yandel. You might say, well, but he works for Bank of America. He's not a pastor. Not so. He is a man who is an under-shepherd of the flock. In fact, Joe is the chairman of our elders, and he's every bit bit an under-shepherd, a leader among us in the sense that he is one who is called by God specifically to help shepherd the flock of God, just what we read in 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, it may be that our sensitivities are, well... I don't necessarily give him that title, uh, even if it may be his function, and I just know him as Joe. Well, guess what? If you were to come up to me and say, I know you as Lance, and I will call you Lance, I would be overjoyed, because that is my name. And you've picked out the right Lance. If you called me pastor, that would be fine. If you called me elder, that would be fine. If you called me under-shepherd, that would be fine. 
Even a third term, if you called me an overseer, and that's actually the word that's translated here in our ESV Bibles to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers. And if you see the marginal note there, it says, or bishops. Now see, that's where it gets a little tricky, right? Because when we think of the word bishop, we think of this hierarchy of a structure of a denomination. And so there's a, there's a pastor of a particular denominational church, and then there's a bishop who's over the pastor. Well, guess what? This is a local church. This is a locally autonomous church. And even though we're a part of an association of churches, actually a couple of associations of churches, we don't have a bishop over us. That's something that's been overlaid upon the New Testament that makes people think that we as elders are accountable to a hierarchy of bishops, even to the point where there are some groups, of course, who have even prelates over the bishops. And then they have another uh, uh, layer over those, and another layer over those. And then sometimes, even those denominational leaders, whatever their names may be, they even decide who your pastor is. And you don't have a choice. And they move men in and out. This person's here for two years, and then they leave, and then we'll appoint somebody else, and then they'll be there for two years. And you may have grown up in a church like that, where you had a revolving door of of a pastor or a preacher from the pulpit, and and you never sort of got close to, to such a one because they changed so frequently. Well, that's not what the New Testament is talking about when it talks about bishops. The idea of a bishop or an overseer is someone who's a guardian. Someone who's overseeing the ministry. Someone who is making sure that the ministry not is running successfully, but that the ministry is ministering effectively. To have the proper leaders in place. To have the proper persons in place. So that you and I are seeing a ministry in which the effectiveness is a blessing to all. That's what an overseeing elder does. And that can happen by someone who's compensated by the church or not. In fact, I think the wonderful symbiotic relationship of compensated and non-compensated elders, pastors, bishops, or overseers is a beautiful combination of the men who are, unlike me, in a work world, in a business context, in which they can, even through their own experience, help someone like me. Give good advice, give good counsel. And likewise, because of my training and my experience in pastoral ministry, I can be of help to them regarding some aspects of theology and doctrine, some of the things that I've been trained to know and to teach. And so therefore, I could be of great help to them also. And the Lord fashions and shapes all of this for us so that we can have a kind of ministry for which the Lord is pleased and from which the Lord is glorified. And that's what Paul is doing here. Paul, of course, was an apostle. Although he said, I'm one who was untimely born. In other words, I wasn't a part of the original 12, even with the replacement of Judas with Matthias. He says, 
I was called by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And so I was born after uh, the twelve in the sense of I wasn't a part of the apostolic band who was close to Jesus, but I also have those who are close with me, including Timothy, and he's taking this, whether he's the amanuensis of this letter or he's actually the distributor of this letter, we don't know for sure, but he has his disciple Timothy and he says we're slaves of Christ Jesus. And then he begins to greet the saints, which is not in the Roman Catholic sense of someone who's above because of their exemplary service, some saint who was benighted as such. This is all of the believers in Philippi. They're known as saints. We're believers, we're Christians, we're saints. If we know Jesus Christ, we're all saints. In the sense that we have been set apart by God to be holy. And we're saints, he says, in Christ Jesus. And these particular folks were in that tiny little town called Philippi. And they were known as the Philippians. And then he says, with, and here's the structure of it, with the overseers and deacons. With them. They are alongside the saints. They're not over the saints in the sense that everybody has to bow to them. Uh, Nobody's saying in the Christian church that elders and deacons are to be venerated. They're not to be worshipped in any way. Only Jesus Christ, as the head of the church, is to be worshipped. But these who we come alongside, these saints, are the ones who then turn around and alongside them as saints, they affirm and appreciate and labor alongside and in some sense under the leadership of overseers, elders, bishops, presbyters, and the deacons. Servants. Deacons is just the word diakonos, which means to serve. And there is a general kind of serving. And then there's an office, maybe we'd say with a capital S, capital servant, who are the deacons, sometimes called the diaconate. The idea that they are of special service in some very important areas. Now, if you're going to ask me the question, and I assume you are, because I'm going to pose it and then you'll think of it in your mind, and then you're really asking me the question. How are these persons appointed? How are they called? Who says? By what process? When? Where? How? Uh, Do the pages of the New Testament give us a sense of this? And I want this morning, for our remaining time, to give you in this first area the calling of an elder... And it, of course, could include deacons, but I want to chiefly talk about elders, and then we'll talk about deacons later. The idea of the calling of an elder. Now, last time I gave you the interchangeable terms, right? I gave you elder, pastor, bishop, or overseer. Now, I want to talk about more of the process, or more of the strategy, or maybe we could even call it a roadmap, a roadmap through which or by which someone can know that they are called to be an elder. And I want to give you four of those this morning, okay? I want to give you four of these. And if you think in your mind in this analogy of a road map, I want you to think about the first and most important direction down the road. And I call it the downward aspect of the call of God for the life of an elder. The downward direction. Because it starts with God Himself. 
It's a downward trajectory. It's God in heaven who determines who an elder is. It's God's prerogative. It's what He does. It's the downward aspect or direction of an elder's life. Some have called it, called it the, the external call of God. Some have even called it the objective aspect of the call of God. Whichever term you use is not as important as the concept itself. And the concept is this. God calls men to be leaders in His church. In fact, if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, even before the church was formed in Acts 2, you find, even though there are some uniquenesses there, and we're also talking about the fact that the revelation of God in the 66 books of the Bible had not yet been completed, but you can find some glimpses of how God normally works when He calls men to service. So this is the most generic way that we can talk about it, but I think it's very insightful, and then we'll get to the New Testament. I want you to turn in your Bibles all the way to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. And I'm going to go through some of these passages, some of them way too quickly, but you'll see the thrust of where I'm headed when I talk about the downward direction of the call of God on a man's life. Exodus chapter 3. Do you remember the burning bush situation with with Moses and how Moses was being called by God there in the burning bush of chapter 3? And God calls him we'd say, to ministry. Notice he says in uh, Exodus 3.12, for example, I will be with you, and this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. That famous phrase. Yahweh. The personal God. His personal presence. And he said, Say to this people of Israel, I am has what? What's the next word? Sent. That's a key idea. What God does in His revelation, even though this is unique to Moses and unique in an Old Testament sense, it still bears witness to us that what God does in a downward direction is that God is calling men to serve Him and He sends them. You know that that's true even of Jesus Christ and the Gospel of John. That, that phrase, sent, 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 is repeated often by Jesus to refer to what His heavenly Father has done in sending Him into the world. Now Moses was a little bit reluctant, right? And you you go into chapter 4, and he says in chapter 4, verse 1, But behold, they will not believe me, or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And right at the very beginning, you have people who are doubting the one who is sending, and they're doubting the one who is sent, right? That's, that's, just a, that's just a part of life. And people will often say, who sent you? Right? I don't know where you've come from. Have you, have you really been sent by God? And part of it is understandable in the sense that I could say all day long that the first aspect of the call of God on a man's life is that he is sent by God. And you would say, but how do we know that? 
How, how do we know that God has sent, and specifically, uh, a particular man? So the Lord said to him in verse 2, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put, your hand, uh, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Now that's a miracle, right? I, I had no such miracle in my calling. I probably too would have been very fearful of picking up the snake, right? And Moses continues, verse 10, But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. Uh, I am slow of speech and of tongue. He may be actually referencing there some kind of speech impediment. And you remember it was his brother whom God ultimately said, I will also use him as your spokesman as you are being used as my spokesman. Remember that? So, what does God say about such an impediment in a man's mouth? Verse 11, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. What's the gist of all this? Objectively speaking, in a downward trajectory or direction, God calls men, He sends men to do His bidding. Right? This is very, very clear. Look at Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1. This is a an illustration from one of the prophets. Jeremiah chapter 1. We looked at Moses. He was the great prophet. Here's another one. Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1. This is most interesting. Here's the call of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1.4. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. This is what God is saying to Jeremiah. And before you were born, I consecrated you, or I set you apart. And then this phrase, I appointed you. Very key. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And, somewhat like Moses, verse 6, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, For to all to whom I send you, there's that sending word again, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out His hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth, so I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And, to plant. and then verse 11, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Word of the Lord, God's word, God's plan, God's appointment, God's calling, God's consecration. You see, just with a couple of illustrations, Moses and Jeremiah, that God in a downward direction says, I will have my spokesman. I will have my representatives. Look at Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1. You can begin to see that this is a kind of pattern that God has, has downwardly caused, called, set apart, appointed men to serve as His leaders. Look at chapter 
1, verse 3, The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzai, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Chebar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. God reached down in a downward direction and called Ezekiel to him. Look at chapter 2. Verse 1, and he said to me, son of man, that was God's name for, for Ezekiel, son of man, son of Adam, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet and I heard him speaking to me and he said to me, son of man, I send you, there it is again, I send you to the people of Israel, a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. And then he goes on to talk about what Ezekiel is supposed to do to be the prophet to Israel. Want a couple of uh, New Testament examples? Go to Paul, Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. We could give you a bunch of them. Here's just one. Galatians chapter 1. Now, I'm not saying that this is how a New Testament elder is called with this kind of specificity, but the general direction The general idea that I want to get across to you is that God makes an elder. God makes a call. He puts out a calling, a kind of sending. And He started with these Old Testament prophets, and He's coming all the way through even to the New Testament time, to the New Testament apostles. And in chapter 1, notice what it says in verse 15. Paul says, But when He, speaking of the Father, God the Father, when He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. That's the the calling of God on a man's life. It's objective, my friends. It's objectively the case that God calls men to serve, including elders. He calls them to serve. Look at Acts chapter 13. If you want to begin to see a pattern that appears to emerge from our Bibles in the book of Acts, as we get closer to actually the calling of an elder, you begin to see some of these things. Acts chapter 13, verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, notice this, the Holy Spirit is a person, not an it. The Holy Spirit said, uh, an it can't speak. This is the third person of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. You see set apart and you see called? It's very specific. This is that downward direction. The Holy Spirit, God, God the Holy Spirit, is is in a directional way from heaven saying, I have called Barnabas and Saul, I've set them apart, and I have called them. This is is a, a major level of importance here regarding spiritual leadership and missionary enterprise and evangelistic encounters. Yes, it's unique as far as the book of Acts is concerned because there are miraculous things going on. We now have the completed canon. It's different for us. But look at chapter 14 of the book of Acts. Chapter 14, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders 
for them in every church, notice plural elders, for each individual church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Notice that phrase, they had appointed elders. Very, very important. Now we're coming pretty close to what's happening in our own day. There's an appointment. But notice this. It's what's happening by way of God doing it, God initiating it, God calling men to be able to serve as appointed elders. This is the way it is. If you want to see it like, like um, two sides of the same coin, the first two of these callings that I'm going to talk you, to you about are vertical. Okay, they're vertical. The last two, they're horizontal. The vertical starts with God, and He brings downward a calling on a man's life. And this is what we begin to see in the book of Acts. Elders are being appointed, and it's by virtue of the Holy Spirit. There's a spiritual enterprise going on here. That's why when someone comes along and says, and this might be an implication for our church, well, it's time for the filling of the slot of another elder. So what do we do? Well, we look around and we say, oh, you know, Jim, he's a good man. I mean, he's, he's, he's a nice fellow. He seems to be godly. Let's just appoint him to the office. Well, there's not anything inherently wrong with that per se, but you have to look at a, the character of a man's life, and you have to ask the question even of Jim himself, do you have what you believe is an understanding of the objective call of God that God in a downward direction calls men to ministry and you might be one of those. And Jim starts to back away because he understands the level of importance. He understands the level of seriousness because who's the one calling first and foremost? God. God's doing it. This is not slot filling. This is not a this is not a sort of um, businessman who does well in the outside world who can help us make some good decisions about the logistics of our church. Not at all. It's a spiritual enterprise. Logistics may come into it. Finances will come into it. Administration will come into it. That's not the bulk of it. In fact, most of the time, that's not even a part of that because that's being given over to others who can do that probably even better and are more equipped in some ways. We will give ourselves to the ministry of the Word and to prayer. This is, this is what happens. This is what begins to happen in the church because God is building into the lives of men elders. You want to see a specific reference? Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now we're getting into the epistles. Now we're getting into the idea of something that God is doing. 1 Timothy chapter 4. This is what God is doing in our midst. Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have. Where do all of our gifts come from? Okay. You got to stop when you read a verse like that. And there is a subjective element to it, and it's Timothy, right? He's the subject, right? That's why we say subjective. He's the subject of such a thing. Paul is speaking, and he says to Timothy, Do not neglect the gift you have, 
which was given you by prophecy. Now remember, New Testament hadn't been completed yet. Paul was still writing these passages inspired by the Holy Spirit. But what he says here is very insightful. God wanted to make it clear that Timothy was going to be one of those who was selected as an elder, and Paul is attempting to say to him, do not neglect such a gift, because if you remember, Timothy, we all brought you up to the front of the congregation, and we all laid our hands on you, because it was clear by way of divine revelation from God to Paul and to the elders that you were going to be serving as an elder. There was a Godward direction, and that direction meant that you are that man and you should not neglect such a gift. He even goes on, which was given you by prophecy when the elders laid their hands on you. That means the laying on of hands is a symbolic affirmation that that man is to serve in that role. That's why when we have somebody come up and we lay our hands on him, it is our symbolic affirmation of such a man to serve. This is is what God does. It would make no sense, my friends, according to what we read in 1 Timothy 5, verse 2, when the command is this, shepherd the flock of God among you. Why have that command if God was not in the business of, of, in a downward direction, choosing such men and then commanding them to shepherd. It would make no sense. If you back into it, you say, well, they are commanded to shepherd the flock of God precisely because God calls shepherds into such a work. He calls them to shepherd. And if He calls them to shepherd, then there's an external call. It's downward in direction And it's a call upon a man's life, and that's a serious thing. It's a serious thing. In fact, turn over to chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, and you'll see it clearly. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. God, the Holy Spirit, inspired a phrase, a noble task, which means that God is calling men to a noble task. It's objective. God is doing it. This is not something that somebody thought up in in the uh, year A.D. 312. You know, it ought to be good if we sort of put some guys forward. This is God's direction for the church. Godly men, godly elders, and God objectifies it by saying, I will call men into ministry and it will be a noble task. There's a nobility to it. In fact, even in 1 Peter 5 when it says, shepherd the flock of God among you according to the will of God. It's God's will that men serve. It's God's plan. It's His purpose. God's will, objectively, is to call men into ministry to shepherd the flock of God. All through the ages, God clearly has either directly or indirectly called men into ministry, and He will, in His providence, direct the affairs of the church in such a way that the spiritual leaders of a church will become evident. You say, yeah, but but see, that's my problem. I mean, if God's the one doing it, How will He let us know? I mean, 
We're not like Moses. I don't have a stick that turns into a serpent which turns back into a stick. I don't have this affirmation that God set me apart from my womb and, and He, uh, through prophecy, uh, set me down like someone like uh, Timothy and this uh, prophecy was uh, spoken into the congregation, set apart for me Lance Quinn to ministry. I didn't have that. I believe in a downward direction, but there's something more than that. Let's call it the inward direction. That's number two. If you want, if you want to see these these vertical callings, it's downward first, and then it's inward second. And it's inward to me. It's inward to every man that's called. It's an inward call. Yes, it is. And it has to be. It has to be an inward call. And when it's an inward call, it's God who is doing it. Absolutely. It's an inward or an internal or a subjective call. And I admit to you it's subjective. I admit to you it's subjective. When I was newly converted and I went on an evangelism retreat to Daytona Beach, Florida in 1979. And I was there in that hotel room. And I looked down from my hotel room upon literally tens of thousands of college young people, beachgoers who were there for a spring retreat, and we were there through a Christian organization for the purpose of witnessing to them. And I left something in my room, and I went to go get it, and I went back up to the hotel room, and I looked out, and I saw on Daytona Beach, Florida, the white sandy beaches, tens of thousands of young people. And it was subjective, I totally admit it, but there was something in my heart, even as a young convert, that I saw all of those people. I knew none of their names, I knew none of their situations, but I knew I was there to witness to some of them, and I had this sense in my heart that God wanted me to devote the rest of my life. There was no call in an audible sense. There was no call like a phone call. Uh, There was no note. I didn't have something in the flyleaf of my Bible. You are called to ministry. But I had this overwhelming sense in my heart that what your vocation or so you thought was going to be is not going to be that. I am calling you into ministry. And in my case, I suppose that it might be calling you into ministry full-time so that you do this not only for your full-time occupation, but you'll do it for the rest of your life. Now, did I know all the facets of that then? Could I have articulated it as I just did this morning? Absolutely not. I was scared stiff. I had no idea. I didn't know what God was doing in my heart. But somehow and in some way, There was this sense of what God was doing in my heart. I didn't have any categories. I didn't have any knowledge particularly. I didn't know my Bible. I'd not been raised in a Christian church. My mother was a Jehovah's Witness for crying out loud. I didn't know anything. In fact, I had to unlearn things. And yet, God patiently and lovingly, with a downward trajectory on the road map, not only of salvation but to service, lifted me to the heights of understanding what he was doing in calling me to ministry. And every elder has the same sense. Different situation, different scenario, different capacities, but it is this. Look at 1 Timothy 3.1. Here's the subjective element. Here it is. I admit it. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone 
aspires to the office of overseer, the office of elder. He desires a noble task. Let's talk first about aspires. Uh, that's, a, that's a word that means to stretch out, to reach forth, to grasp, to strive for. And that is one of those ways that you can help somebody determine whether or not they're called to serve as an elder. Do they desire the work of the office? Do they strive for it? Do they reach out for it? Not the office, the work of the office. Those, at times, are very different things. Very different. Oh, yeah, I want the office. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I want the office. Oh, but do you want the work of the office? Well, I'm not so sure. It's hard. It's exacting. It is is self-purifying. It is an accountability. James 3.1, Let not many of you be teachers, for in in that you'll incur a stricter judgment. Heaven awaits. God looking down in the downward direction of calling such a man, and when He calls him subjectively in His heart, with that man pursuing, aspiring, reaching out, stretching forth, he also has an accountability to that same God, and he will give an account to that same God for how he manifested and used and appropriated the gifts that he was given. Just a serious thing. And then notice it says desires. Oh, what a fantastic word. Desires. That's epithemia. That's the word thumos, which is out of which we get the word passion. And then the little epi on the front of the word intensifies the word epithumia. And it means this, strong desire. Strong desire. In fact, even the word thumos is sometimes translated in our Bibles as anger. Anger. That passion that is misplaced and when it when it means that someone isn't getting what they think they want, they get angry about it. That's how passionate the desire is. And epithumia, depending on the context in which it applies, like 1 Timothy 3, that means desire in the good sense. That means passion in the good sense. And when you put epi on the front of it, that means a passionate desire. You're stretching out for it. You're aspiring to it. You desire it. And it's a good thing that you're desiring because it's a noble task that you have before you. Now, that's subjective. Of course it is. And that's why you want to do it according to 1 Peter 5, willingly. Not unwillingly. You want to do it voluntarily, not involuntarily. You shouldn't be pushed into it. Well, we got a slot. we 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 got to fill a slot. We've asked six guys already and nobody wants to serve. You're the seventh. That seems to be the perfect number. How about you? I mean, we're talking about eternal verities here. We're talking about truth. We're talking about God in a downward direction making it clear. We're talking about God making it clear in the inward aspect of the heart of a man who says, I desire to do this. I'll just give you one example. My friend Jim Hines. I've watched his life for over 30 years now. And I've had many, many conversations with him. And so when it came time for him to be set before the congregation as an elder... And he and I would have conversations and I would ask him specific questions and he aspires to that office. It is a a noble task that he desires to do. It's a compelling desire. 
It's a confronting desire because you know what's ahead. You know the work involved. You know the accountability it takes. You know the teaching that must occur. You have the desire. And when you have that desire, you may sound like Samuel Chadwick, one of England's great preachers. This is what he said. I have loved my job with a passionate and consuming love. I would rather preach than do anything else I know in this world. I've never missed a chance to preach. I would rather preach than eat my dinner or have a holiday or anything else the world can offer. I would rather pay to preach than be paid not to preach. It has its price in agony and sweat and tears, and no calling has such joys and heartbreaks, but it is a calling an archangel might covet. And I thank God that of His grace He called me into this ministry. Is there any joy like that of saving a soul from death? Any thrill like that of opening blind eyes? Any reward like the love of little children to the second and third generation? Any treasure like the grateful love of hearts healed and comforted? I tell you, it is a glorious privilege to share the travail and wine and the wine of God. I wish I had been a better preacher. Oh, my word. That's a man who knows the office. And I use Jim as an illustration because we had a conversation recently in which he says, I I, I love my job. I, I love the fact that I'm able to support my family, put bread on the table. But here's my real desire. I can't wait to be able in my 60s now to be able to retire from what I'm doing vocationally so I can devote my entire life, heart, and soul to the church. I say, that sounds like an elder. That sounds like an elder. That sounds like a man who's reaching for it, who's stretching for it, who who desires it with all of his heart. This This is that man. This is indicative of that man. And it's and it's inward, but the inward is is constituted by the downward. God's doing it. God's doing something. You say, well, how do I know? How do I really know this? Let's talk about the next one. Let's call it sideward. Sideward. And this is where we get into the horizontal aspect of it. Okay? Here's the side-by-side relationships of people in the church. And here's where you come in, congregation. Here's what you do. You begin a process of seeing men like that. You begin to watch them. You begin to see their life. You begin to realize who they are. And by your own affirmation, your own appointment, your your own prayers, you are as much involved in this work as anybody else. Because you are watching such a man. They are coming alongside you. They are shepherding you. They are praying with you. They love you. They care for you. They want to be with you and you want to be with them. You want to be with them because you're a sheep and they want to smell like sheep. It's it's hard. It's hard work. But we love it so because of all of those eternal things that Samuel Chadwick said. It's, it's, It's to see little children be bolstered in the faith. 
It's to see their parents love you because of what you're doing and teaching their children about the faith. It's you coming alongside those parents so that they can be better equipped to to raise up these children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's for an opportunity to, to counsel a weary soul. It's for the opportunity for you and me to see someone who is raised up in his teaching gifts and abilities and that his aptitude to teaching is becoming stronger and stronger and you're watching that and you're seeing that and you're beginning to affirm that and you side by side with such a man you're beginning to gain greater confidence yourself that he may in fact be one of those for whom God in a downward trajectory is putting him on a direction of eldership and then he's beginning to express it inwardly in his own soul and you are beginning to say this is a man for whom I can entrust myself as a sheep I love him I care about him I want him to know that in a sideward direction, side by side by side, we are coming together. And I want his ministry in my life. In fact, I want all of the elders and their ministries in my life. That's where you come in. And then you begin to affirm. And all those phrases, appointment, set apart, confirmation, even the word ordination, is the idea of all of these things collectively on the part of the church bringing a man before the congregation for whom the vast majority of those folks in that congregation say, yes, yes, I believe he's an elder. Yes, I'd be happy to affirm him. I'd be happy to appoint him. And that's why in the book of Acts it says, and the apostles affirmed certain elders, plural, in every city, and it seemed good to the congregation. I love that balance. It seemed good to the congregation. Yes, they have a side-by-side relationship with this man and they can see him growing and honoring the Lord and having the character and the aptitude of an elder. This is where you come in. And while an eldership is self-perpetuating in the sense that other elders are also evaluating every week of their life their fellow elders... You as a congregation, you're doing the same. You're doing the same. And if a particular church has a way to reaffirm and reconfirm, they'll do so. And if there's an issue, the elders will know about it with their fellow elder, and the congregation will come to us, and we will know that if, in fact, this brother has some issues in his life for which he needs to take time, maybe even time off, maybe even if he is in fact disqualified, then both the congregation and the eldership will begin to work together to come alongside such a brother. That's the side-by-side relationship. And that's the horizontal. If the downward and the inward is vertical, that's between God and us, then the horizontal definitely includes the side-by-side relationship. Fourth and finally, let's call this the outward direction. The outward direction. You know what the outward direction is? His ministry is effective. His ministry is effective. It bears fruit. It's a kind of fruit bearing for which everyone says, He ministers to my soul. He teaches me. I'm instructed when He's up front. I'm instructed when I'm a part of His Bible study. I'm instructed when I'm sitting under His small group instruction. 
I believe this man is called with a downward affirmation from God Himself, with an inward affirmation of his own soul and his delight in the service, with a collective affirmation around us in a side-by-side relationship, and with an effectiveness for which the outward trajectory of his life is that people are saved and sanctified. You say, who is sufficient for such things? Who? And that's what I say in the mirror every morning of my life. In fact, I'm convinced that's why I shave. Because it gives me the opportunity to look at myself in the mirror and say, are you qualified today? Is your ministry effective? Do you teach with conviction and power and passion? Do you rightly represent the Word of God when you teach? Are you studying your brains out to make sure that these people are receiving the pure, unadulterated Word of the living God? It's not a game. We're not playing marbles with diamonds. This is is eternal truth. And I want you to know that I am qualified in your midst. There's no secret life of shame with me. I'm not doing something I shouldn't be doing. There's not anything that I know of that would render me as not above reproach. And I want you to know that from my heart to yours. And in our side-by-side relationship, if you see something inconsistent in my life, if you catch me up short with something, I better be a quick repenter, a quick forgiver, because I'm quick to forgive. I want you to hold me accountable. I want you to hold the elders accountable. I want you to say about us that we are saying about you, and that is, we have a relationship that I never want to see damaged. I can't imagine what it would be for me to stand right here and to have to say to you, I must step down from my ministry because I have been disqualified morally. My finances, my sexual life, my character, I can't imagine it. And you know that apart from my relationship with God, and apart from my own Bible study, and apart from my own internal mechanisms with which I try to keep myself accountable, and those are all important, and they're first base, the thing that also helps keep me accountable is that lady sitting in that chair right there who's my wife, who actually, I mean, this is amazing, she actually thinks I should actually live out everything I preach. (laughs) I mean, what a standard! And I preach, this, I preach this great sermon, and I'm passionate, and the Lord was honored, and I go home and say, hey, what did you, hey, was that not good? And she says, take the trash out. You're, you're not all that much. And when I would have to stand here, like Samuel Chadwick says, and I would have to confess to you some kind of secret life of hidden shame, I'd rather die. I would never want to go to my children and say, your dad was a fake and a phony and a fraud. Never, ever, ever, ever. That's a great accountability. That's part of the reason why I assume the Lord called me into ministry. I'm going to hold you especially accountable. And I'm going to use every means available to me. And I know every one of these elders think the same thing. 
Every one of these elders in training were thinking the same thing. This is too high for us. This is too lofty. This is too great. This is too wide. This is too expansive. And I want you to know we love it so. Because it's holding us to the highest standard. Gone are the days of just slot filling. Gone are the days, well, what about him? He can do it. No, what about him? No, he can do it. No, this is, this is a man who stretches forth his hand and says, I aspire, I desire, and he has the requisite skill. You say, well, that sounds like one of those compensated guys. doesn't have to be. doesn't have to be at all. It's just any man to whom God downwardly calls, to whom he inwardly aspires, and for whom collectively, side by side, you and I come alongside him and affirm him, and we lay our hands on him, and his ministry is ultimately effective because outwardly it bears fruit all around. Anybody want an elder like that? Let's pray. Father, This is what an elder is to do. This is what an elder is to be. This is the calling. And you call us. Down from heaven, you say, men are called to ministry. And inwardly, we say, I think I may be one of them. And we say it with trepidation. And we say it with fear. And we say it with a resolute heart that we can't, do it apart from your enabling grace. Oh, Father, bring us to a place of seeing this call clearly in the vertical dimension. And then, please, Lord, bring this congregation to a place of of seeing and hearing and fasting and praying for spiritual leaders of this kind, far beyond whatever we could ask or think. Bring truly godly men among us. Work in the godly men who are here now. Allow them to be collectively affirmed and reaffirmed and reconfirmed by our congregation year after year after year. And that because the ministry is outwardly effective. His ministry is bearing fruit. He's skilled. Oh, it may be, Lord, that Some may be a little skilled in some area of service than another. It could be someone who's skilled in the preaching and teaching area that others might not be as comfortable doing Sunday in, Sunday out, but in the kaleidoscopic gifts and abilities of the totality of an eldership, bring us all together and provide just the right gifts and the right talents and the right abilities and the right responsibilities so that downwardly, Inwardly, sidewardly, and outwardly, we are the leadership you've entrusted to the ministry here at Bethany Church on the Hill. May it be so, for your glory and for your praise. In Jesus' name, amen.